Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallton, and today we are going to talk to political scientist Nelson Wiseman about his newly released book on the history of political parties in Canada. Nelson Wiseman is a professor of political science and Canadian studies at the University of Toronto, a longtime author and commentator of Canadian public affairs. Professor Wiseman has written books on the history of the CCF NDP in Manitoba, where he grew up, the evolution of political cultures in Canada, and public intellectuals in Canada. His latest book, Partisan Odysseys, Canada's Political Parties, was published by UTP in 2020. Nelson, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Well, let's get one thing out of the way. I know you're a political scientist, but this book is really about the history of the development of political parties in Canada. Is that correct? Yes, it is. You know, it's a political history. That's my orientation. Most historians these days aren't doing political history. They're doing social history, but I don't apologize. I'm something of an old-fashioned social scientist. I do my own research. And I think history is vital for understanding the current political situation. I agree with you, it is. And your book is actually organized chronologically, beginning with political parties in the 19th century, uh, and then working its way through the 20th century with the liberals and the conservatives, and then the new parties of protest that emerged in the interwar years, and then through the post-war years with particular emphasis on minority governments, which were a little more common in that period, as well as the rise of separatist and regional parties from the 1960s and on. And then finally, the transformation of the old parties themselves by the end of the century. Now, I suspect you're saying that you can't understand today's political parties without a deep understanding of their histories. Is that accurate? Yeah, well, I think it helps to understand them if, if, and, and to appreciate them if you do have a grounding in their histories. Uh, but, you know, a lot, we're, we're caught up these days in presentism. So a lot of people uh, don't see the strands that are consistent or the strands that have been broken. And we've had that with uh, in the history of our parties, as I, I try to show up in my book. Well, that's the one thing that comes out very clear to me as I read the book, was the extent to which you can see what's new and what's old, what is continuous and what isn't. So let's start with how the conservative and liberal parties first emerged and then sustained themselves as Canada's establishment parties. Well, the, the Conservative Party of Canada modeled itself on the British Conservative Party, and the Liberal Party of Canada in the 19th century modeled itself on the British Liberal Party. Canada was very much a British society. Of course, it was a bicultural society, but the Anglos were very much, the English speakers were very much in charge. So uh, for someone like MacDonald, John A. MacDonald, he would look to people like Benjamin Disraeli. And for the liberals, they would look to British liberals like uh, Gladstone. Uh, what contributed to the uh, party's uh, t 
taking root is that as Canada grew, because remember in 1867, there were just four provinces. As more provinces joined, um, the federal parties, McDonald was good at this, and then Laurier did it as well, began to incorporate into their uh, cabinets provincial premiers. That would be, you know, you don't have very much of that today. You know, you can't uh, see any provincial premiers in any of the recent federal governments. But then it was more common. Indeed, in the first election in Canada in 1867, uh, you could run and sit both in the House of Commons and in a provincial legislature. So a lot of things have changed since then. But by the end of the 19th century, uh, Canada already had acquired the West, although Saskatchewan and, and Alberta weren't provinces, but we did have BC and Manitoba, and although their party systems weren't developed as they were in Ontario and the Maritimes and Quebec, and politicians in those regions started to identify with either the federal conservatives or liberals. Another thing that uh, contributed to the party's identity in these early years, especially I would say at the turn of the 20th century when we had important events like the Boer War in South Africa, was um, the dynamic between those who I would call imperialists or imperial federationists who saw Canada's role as a, a leading country in a, in a British imperial enterprise that spanned the world. And that outlook was uh, dominant in the Conservative Party. And another outlook, which uh, saw Canada first and foremost as a North American nation, and looked much more kindly at the United States. And that was generally the outlook of the Liberal Party. And thus the Liberal Party favored free trade in the, uh, which was the main issue in the elections of 1891 and 1911. And the Conservative Party was opposed to it and favored the notion of uh, imperial preference. Right, and so, uh... The period of the First World War, of course, created all kinds of tensions, and out of the First World War rose the Progressive Party, uh, really challenging the hegemony of the two establishment parties. But what was the Progressive Party, and why did it fall apart so quickly? Well, the Progressives were actually uh, just liberals who had felt, felt betrayed by the Liberal Party because the Liberal Party had been the party promising freer trade with the United States. The Progressive Party was a sectional party, a, re a regional party, but I don't mean it was just a Western party because they elected 65 people in 1921 when we had a, a, a smaller House of Commons than we do today, and 24 of them were from Ontario, but they were rural riders. And so, they felt that the liberals had left the path of true liberalism because they had maintained the national policy of the conservatives, which was to help build up nascent Canadian industries to keep tariffs on goods coming into the country from the United States. So, uh, so why did they fall apart? Well, because it was a very loose coalition. Indeed, uh, it wasn't a coherent group. And uh, Parliament contributes, requires coherent groups to operate. Uh, so they didn't believe in party discipline. 
uh, the leadership was essentially from Manitoba. Uh, the, the progressives elected in Alberta, which were much more radical, the Manitobans were more conservative. They simply wanted to reform the Liberal Party. And indeed, both the leader of the progressives, that was um, uh, 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 Tom Creerar, and the deputy leader, Robert Ford, re-entered the Liberal Party and ended up in the Liberal cabinet, whereas the Albertans stayed out. And so the Progressive Party was just a very loose uh, group, not running so much on a common platform, although they shared this notion of freer trade and uh, they didn't want party discipline imposed. Uh, you know, they wanted um, more private members' bills. They, they, they wanted uh, um, more free votes in Parliament, those sorts of things. They weren't a coherent group. At uh, Mackenzie King, the Liberal Prime Minister, was very astute at picking them off. So the devastation, though, of the Great Depression did produce two parties that would last much longer, and in fact, one of them is very much part of the polit political scene today. Uh, so can you describe the social credit and cooperative Commonwealth Federation parties that emerged in the Great Depression, why they emerged, and uh, the kind of uh, influence they had on the Canadian polity in general. So they emerged really in the 1935 election. In the midst of the Depression, the CCF was formed in 1932. The uh, Social Credit came to power provincially in Alberta in 1935. Uh, let me just say there was a third party a party that got more votes than either Social Credit or the CCF, but only won one seat. And that's the Reconstruction Party, uh, headed by a former Conservative cabinet minister, H.H. H. Stevens, who after a few years being frustrated, went right back into the Conservative Party. So, the st so we have to ask the question, why was the Reconstruction Party, why did it disappear? It got 9% of the vote nationally. Uh, social credit only got 4% of the vote. The CCF got 7%. The reason is because the CCF and social credit's votes were uh, more efficiently distributed. They were concentrated. So the CCF had support in some uh, urban centers, uh, like Winnipeg, in, in Saskatchewan, among farmers, and social credit had gotten elected in Alberta. And... Um, won a large, all the seats that won were in Alberta. They won two in, in uh, western Saskatchewan, adjacent to the Alberta border. So why did these parties um, sink roots? Well, because for social credit, they had a strong base in Alberta. But once you left Alberta, uh, like in the 1945 election, the, all of their seats were in Alberta. After social credit came to power in BC, they also won some seats there, but they didn't gain seats anywhere else in the country. Although they did have an affiliate in Quebec, it wasn't successful uh, until the 1960s. Although Ray Alcoet, who ended up becoming a, uh, a social credit MP and then led his own party, the Rallye Creditiste in the 60s, he actually got elected uh, in 1946 in a by-election. Uh, uh, running for uh, an affiliate of the Social Credit Party, uh, Quebec affiliate. Uh, the CCF, uh, one way to look at, uh, I think the most important way to look at the CCF 
just as we looked at the liberals and conservatives patterning themselves on the, the British liberal and British conservative parties, the CCF patterned itself on the British Labour Party and its leaders were heavily British. I mean, M.J. Coldwell, who led the party after uh, J.S. Woodsworth stepped down, Tommy Douglas, they were both born in Britain. Uh, so um, the strategy of the CCF was, or their objective was to accomplish the same thing the Labour Party had done in Britain, which was to leapfrog the Liberal Party and, and essentially, Canada would develop a two-party system of left and right with the CCF or Labour on the left and the Conservatives on the right. But uh, the Liberal Party in Canada wouldn't go away if for uh, the reason that Canada's makeup was very, very different, still is, than Britain. And that takes us back to the bicultural nature of the country. So the Liberal Party was sustained uh, by, uh, by its support in Quebec. Right, and in fact, the Liberal Party of Canada not only survived, but it became a, a political dynasty. Some would call it a natural governing party, holding office between 1935 and 1957, and again from 1963 until 1984. So what was it about the Liberal Party of Canada in terms of its structure and organization that made it so successful for so long? Well, with respect to the dynasty or the natural governing party, I would go right back to 1896. I think the Liberals have been in power, I don't know, for maybe 75 or 80% all the years since then. They're currently in power. I don't think it was organization. In fact, um, the Liberals were quite poorly um, organized, I would say. I could talk about that. They were essentially a federation of provincial parties, but they did hold federal power. Uh, it, I don't think it was organization. It, was it leadership? I wouldn't say it was so much leadership, although the leader they had for most of the period, the longest serving prime minister we ever had, Mackenzie King, was much more astute in managing parliament and the politics of biculturalism than the conservative leaders were. The key was looking at the social bases of support for the parties, and that was Quebec. So the conservatives couldn't win any seats in Quebec. They went for, I don't know, it was 30, 40, 50 years, they couldn't win more than one or two seats in Quebec. Well, because Quebec made up uh, at least a quarter of the country, uh, that was a big head start for the liberals. And it still is. I mean, if we look back to Pierre Trudeau, uh, and the Constitution, I mean, the, the, and the Charter of Rights, that was rammed through the House of Commons because the majority of the people sitting in the Liberal Caucus were from Quebec. Uh, so the social bases of the parties changed. The, the Conservative Party was essentially, uh, it had a lot of support in Toronto before uh, the 1960s. In fact, before the 50s, the, Toronto was known as Tory Toronto. And it had uh, a support in rural Ontario. The Liberal Party was essentially a party of um, Quebec and Western Canadian farmers. What changed was what changed was the appearance of John Diefenbaker in the mid fifties. He was the first leader of the uh, 
uh, the Conservative Party, unlike George Drew or John Bracken or or uh, R.J. Mannion or Arthur Meehan, uh, you know, or R.B. Bennett uh, or Robert Borden, who wasn't the straight uh, Anglo-Saxon, you know, which is indicated by his German name, although he was only half German. And so that opened up the party. Uh, and we, the prairies were the most culturally diverse region of Canada in the 50s, where you had large numbers of immigrants that had come to the prairies and to Canada at the turn of the 20th century, Ukrainians, Jews, Poles, uh, Russians, uh, Scandinavians, and they swung over to the Conservative Party because this wasn't the old Tory party of George Drew and of Bay Street. So that reconfigured politics. And since the late 50s, the Conservatives have been a strong force in Western Canada, whereas before, they barely won any seats there under John Bracken, who had been the premier of Manitoba. And that's why they selected him to be their leader in the 40s. They thought, OK, well, he'll win the West for us. But he only won five seats for the party in the 1945 election. And they couldn't make, and they only won one seat in Quebec. In fact, in that election, they, the Conservatives couldn't find more than 29 people to run for them in the 65 constituencies. The traditional model of Westminster parliamentary systems is of basically a competition between two parties, and that always produces a majority government. I was really interested in your chapter on minority governments. So what I would like to you to address is what we now view as the success of the back-to-back -back Pearson minority governments. And by success, what I mean is that the Pearson government was able to get so much done to achieve so much in terms of public policies uh, with only a minority government. It managed to pass the Canada Pension Plan, Quebec Pension Plan Arrangement, uh, Medicare, and numerous other achievements. And it did so with a minority government. Um, first of all, tell us a little bit about minority governments in terms of that traditional Westminster model. And second of all, was the Pearson government unusual in the way that it was able to achieve so much? Well, okay, let me say something about minority governments. I called that chapter, I think, minority governments because it, in the space of eight years, we had five elections and four of them returned minority governments. But if we look at the course of history since 1921, when we had more than uh, two parties in the House, because before that, you were always going to get a majority government, uh, I think um, maybe more than a third of all our, all our elections have produced minority governments. I mean, the current government's a minority. Two out of three of Harper's governments were minority governments. Uh, 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 two of, um, of Trudeau's governments, two of the four, I guess, uh, were also minority governments. So minority government has now become a lot more common in Canada, and that's logical as you get more if you get more parties into the House of Commons. In fact, the only reason we uh, uh, we had majority governments in the 90s was because the Conservative Party split between Reform and the old Progressive Conservatives, 
allowing the Liberals on 50% of the vote to essentially win 98, 99% of all the seats in Ontario. So that gave Chrétien back-to-back uh, -back majorities, but that was unusual. And then once that ended, uh, we got back to more, once the uh, uh, Canadian Alliance and the Progressive Conservatives decided to merge, although I'd say it was more of an acquisition, um, then we got back to getting minority governments again. Um, now, the second part of your question was, oh, how come we accomplished so much uh, during the, uh, the Pearson years, during the uh, minority governments? Well, I noticed you only referred to two specific uh, uh, significant but policy accomplishments. That was the Canada Pension Plan and Medicare. What I want to make clear is that, yes, John Diefenbaker became very unpopular in the early 60s. In, in, in effect, after 1959, when we went into recession and the government canceled the Avro Arrow, which was very popular in public opinion. But I, the point I want to make is we look back fondly, a lot of people do, as you're doing, Greg, on the, on the Pearson years, but Pearson was very unpopular as well. In fact, in the 1962 election, when the NDP, the new, the, the new party, it, it was essentially the CCF with a new name, was introducing itself to Canadians, it produced the pamphlet in where it spelled out the acronym NDP as standing for neither Diefenbaker nor Pearson. So we look back at accomplishments like Medicare, but let's remember Saskatchewan had pioneered it. And the other thing I would say, a lot of them, a major factor that we got social programs like Medicare and the pension plan was because Canada was booming in the 60s economically, and in the late 50s, or, or really the, all of the 50s, although we did have recessions, but they weren't as severe as, you know, some of the recessions we've had in, in, in the more recent decades, or I'd say since the 70s. So government started to, uh, there was dramatic growth in their revenues, and it wasn't just happening federally, it was happening provincially. So we had governments like Robert Stanfield's in Nova Scotia, in addition to Tommy Douglas in Saskatchewan, uh, Duff Roblin in Manitoba, uh, it, the social credit government in Alberta, which was putting money into things like not just highways, but into education, into hospitals, creating universities. I mean, that dramatic increase in, in the size of universities here in Ontario in the 1960s. So uh, you've got to put it in the broader uh, 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 economic context, as well as the social context, which coming out of the Second World War, it, where uh, planning had proved its efficacy, Canadians now look to government to provide them with social programs. So remember, family allowances didn't start in the 60s. They started under a majority government in 1944. Um, Old age pensions didn't start in the 60s. They started under a majority liberal government in 1951. Uh, hospitalization program nationally started in 1957. It was introduced by the liberals and continued by the conservatives. So a lot of these things, what, what I'm saying is, yes, 
because we now celebrate Medicare, but actual and and indeed a lot of provinces, uh, some provinces didn't go into Medicare immediately, and and even after they did, most kept Medicare premiums, uh, which we don't have now. So uh, it took a while for those to disappear. Talking about political parties and focusing on the development of the parties within Canada, one, one thing that I've always noted is the extent to which there is a division between provincial parties and federal parties in Canada relative to other countries, in particular other federations, so that these days they're de facto and often de jure separate parties. Do you think this was inevitable development in the country, or do you think that uh, there were factors that were historically contingent that caused this? I, I think both were at work. Uh, one of the reasons it was inevitable, to use your term, but I don't want to I I exaggerate how separate they are, is because of the growth of what I call the provincial state. I mean, if we look at the budgets of the provinces today or the last uh, 15, 20 years, they exceed the size of the federal budget. Where is that the case in other federations in the world? It's not in the United States. So uh, the provinces are the ones that do the heavy lifting when you come to actually delivering programs like education, welfare programs, health, social assistance, those, those sort of things. Uh, you know, our hospitals, our municipalities, our universities. Um, so it was inevitable that provinces would grow as their muscles, their fiscal muscles develop. And the federal government has been transferring more and more of its fiscal capacity over the years, both in tax points and in cash grants to the provinces. Um, the other thing, uh, Another element that contributed uh, to a separation of the parties, and this is more institutional and legal, is that in the 1970s, here was a change that came through with minority government. In Trudeau's minority government of 72 to 74, a, a condition for the NDP supporting it was that it insisted on campaign finance legislation. That was introduced. And the law it, uh, gave political parties a legal status. Until 1974, the law passed in 1973, but 1974 we had an election. Until that election, uh, when Canadians went to vote, there were names on the ballot, but there were no party names on the ballot. Because uh, the state now regulated financing uh, for candidates, for parties, uh, the chief electoral officer wasn't going to decide if two people claimed they were both representing the Liberal Party running in a riding. So under the law, which still exists, if you want the name Liberal or Conservative or NDP or Green or whatever attached next to your name, the leader of the party has to sign your nomination paper. So this has contributed to... Uh, also separating the parties because before 1974, you could just give money 
to the Conservative Party, to a bagman who came by and said, look, you know, we're all one big party. We're conservatives federally and provincially. Starting in 1974, no, no, if you wanted to, you are you contributing to the federal party or to the provincial party? Now, all the provinces then adopted, after Ottawa did, also finance uh, legislation, partisan finance legislation. So now the parties are legally separate in a way. Uh, so that also reinforced a couple of things. It reinforced party discipline in parliament. And it also reinforced the uh, division between federal and provincial parties. Now, having said that, it doesn't follow that we don't, if we follow the career of politicians, we do see that a number of them do uh, go back and forth between federal and provincial. Uh, this always was the case. Tommy Douglas originally got elected federal, uh, federally in 1935. Then he ran provincially, became the premier. Then when the NDP was formed, then he, he, he ran as the leader of the NDP. Um, Sheila Copps was a provincial liberal, then she became a federal liberal, but she, she was a liberal all along. Uh, uh, you know, we could also see, you know, people, Duff Roblin, who was the premier of Manitoba. But then when the conservatives came to power federally, they appointed him as a conservative senator. The same with uh, Jed Buchanan of, um, of Nova Scotia. So you do have people that see themselves as conservatives, as liberals, that is, as NDPers, and, and they identify at both the federal and provincial level that way, and they do move back and forth. But their party organizations are legally separate so, uh, for example, here in Ontario, although they might work very closely, about a block from me, uh, until they pulled down the building, uh, I, I discovered that the Liberal Party of Canada, Ontario section, had an office, and right next door was an office of the Liberal Party of Ontario, two, two legally separate organizations. Let me say another thing about that. Until about 10 years ago, you couldn't become a member of the Liberal Party of Canada. They didn't even have a common um, membership uh, under, the, under their constitution. Anybody who had been a member of a provincial party uh, could get representation at their federal conventions. So at the convention that selected Paul Martin, uh, the largest uh, group, uh, the liberals claimed, I forget, something like a half a million members in the country, or 400,000, and by far the largest section was New Brunswick, because New Brunswick said anybody who ever voted a liberal in, in, in New Brunswick or was related to somebody liberal, they were considered members of the New Brunswick Liberal Party. So, you know, the actual membership of parties, they're like, a, uh, the parties are like accordions. Uh, uh, you don't have that many members. Uh, uh, the numbers can get juiced up uh, during leadership conventions, and those and uh, most of those are uh, transient members. They sign up, and and they may not even have paid for their membership, and then uh, you never hear from them again. So, uh, uh, you know, this happened in Ontario uh, after at one point um, uh, when uh, when Mike Harris stepped down. There was a big race for the Ontario conservative leadership, because if you got elected, you were automatically the premier. 
So the Ontario Conservatives claimed they had 100,000 members. Okay, a year later, there was an election. They lost the election to the Liberals. How many members did the Conservative Party now have? Oh, all of a sudden, they only had 3,000 members. A few years after that, they had another leadership convention. John Tory became leader of the Ontario Conservatives. Oh, now they had 66,000 members. So you can see these numbers are very elastic. When Patrick Brown, the short-lived leader of the uh, Conservative Party in Ontario is here, he claimed they had over 200,000 members. And in some writings, they claimed they had more members than in the subsequent election, people actually even turned out to vote for them. So I don't put much stock in membership numbers. The parties are largely empty shells run by entourages around the leaders. And that power of the leaders has been reinforced by this law that I trace back to the 70s. So that uh, I think uh, a party discipline in Canada seems to be stronger than anywhere. I think parties vote uh, the party line in parliament, the leader's line, something like 99% of the time. It's very unusual for them, for anybody to break ranks because the leader can throw you out of the caucus, and they do. Nelson, you refer to the Parti Québécois as a disruptor party. Uh, what do you yes. mean by this? Well, it disrupted the, the Quebec party system. Uh, in Quebec, historically, we had liberals and conservatives. Conservative liberals and conservatives, then in the 30s, regrouped. They call themselves the Union Nationale. So it's essentially the old Conservative Party led by an old Conservative MLA, Maurice Duplessis. And you had the Liberal Party. You had two-party part competition the way we had in Canada before 1891, before 1921 or the 1930s. And then all of a sudden in the 70s, you get the Parti Québécois. Now you've got a, a, a different dynamic. And... Uh, so it disrupted the traditional party system in Quebec. Other disruptor parties, I could refer to the Bloc Québécois the in, in the 90s, the Reform Party in the 90s. We had a disruptor party in Quebec federally, or it tried to disrupt, but it wasn't very successful. The Bloc Populaire Canadien in 1945, but they only elected a couple of people federally, and they only elected four people provincially. But so these are parties that enter and disrupt the system. If you want another example, uh, we could look at social credit in British Columbia. I mean, in British Columbia, we had a coalition government of liberals and conservatives from the early 40s until the early 50s. Why did they coalesce? Because each party, and the third party was the CCF, was getting about a third of the vote, and they were frightened that the CCF would form government. So the liberals and conservatives got into bed together. Then a couple of conservatives, uh, W.A.C. Uh, Bennett, Tilly Ralston, broke from the conservative ranks and they called themselves social credit, although they weren't followers of social credit monetary theory. But social credit was in Alberta. They tagged on the name and all of a sudden they disrupted the whole party system in in British Columbia, and we haven't heard from the Conservative Party in British Columbia since that fateful election in 1952. And they also more or less killed off the Liberal Party, which only came back in the early 90s, which was a disruptor then between the NDP and social credit. 
And the reason that happened is because the uh, the the TV uh, stations or networks allowed the liberal leader Gordon Wilson at the time to participate in the leaders' debate. But once you do that, uh, uh, things can change because in a leaders' debate on television, everyone gets equal time, and so they don't have the uh, the advantages or the disadvantages of what happens when you're sitting in parliament. That's for sure. Well, Nelson, thank you so much for uh, making us aware the content of your history of political parties, and I'm sure that you're going to get some new readers. Thank you, Greg. My guest today was Nelson Wiseman. He's the author of Partisan Odysseys, Canada's Political Parties, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2020. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of Ottawa Press, and UBC Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on November 28th, 2020 in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt.